Um, but I don't know about you, but I'm feeling good. Yesterday was a big win. Um, it was a really exciting game. Uh, I don't know if anybody else was feeling that same energy uh, when we beat Georgia Tech, um, but it was a lot of fun. Oh, you guys didn't watch the Kentucky-Georgia Tech game, because that's what, that's what I was watching yesterday, and it was great. Um, but uh, as, as I said, I'm from Kentucky, and one of the things that's weird about being from Kentucky is you have this identity that's kind of mixed. You kind of have a mixed bag. Um, so my mom and dad, they're both uh, college-educated. They are both uh, have taught in the academic setting for years. Um, but they're also, my dad grew up as Tommy Joe and grew up in a little town called Kiyoki of about 400 and grew up, he was the last house with electricity in his holler when he was a kid. And so he, there's kind of this dual world uh, that my family has kind of straddled for a long time. And it gives you this weird sense of identity. Um, it's a little bit like when you do one of those DNA tests. I get ads for those all the time on Facebook and I don't need a DNA test to tell me that you are very, very white. Um, and so I've never done one. But I'm assuming you'll learn something about yourself. You'll learn something about your family's history. I don't know if I want to know more about my family's history. Uh, Because there's stuff back there that's just, it's embarrassing. There's stuff back there that you don't want to bring up. Just an example from my own family. Um... If you are somebody who grew up as a part of a union family, you've heard this song before. Uh, Which side are you on? You can choose which side you're on. You can either be a union man or not. And this famous song, this famous ballad that's been redone by tons and tons of musicians, in there is this line that says, in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. And J.H. Blair was the sheriff of Harlan County at the time, and he brought in a bunch of gangsters from Chicago and broke up a union protest violently and became known as Bloody Harlan. That's my great uncle. That's, that's some of my family history. Uh, my dad has a cousin that we don't ever talk about um, who was put to death in Texas as a convicted murderer. Um, those are family stories that you just leave on the cutting room floor. We'll talk about my great-grandfather who argued a case in front of the Supreme Court despite the fact that he only had a seventh-grade education. We'll bring those stories up, but we won't talk about the things that are a little, a little embarrassing Especially not at Christmas. Like, you don't want to bring those stories up. You don't want to bring those people up. Can you imagine a Hallmark movie where grandma's sitting there? She's had a couple shots of fireball. It's probably in Kentucky. She starts talking. And she begins to tell this story, to tell this tale about back during the war. Back during the war. What life was like back then. And as you begin to listen to the story, you begin to realize, like, Grandma had a life before, before we knew her, before she was grandma. As a matter of fact, I, Grandma, it, it sounds like you're saying you used to, you and Roxanne were friends, like you used to work in the red light district. Is that what you're saying, Grandma? Like that's not a Christmas story we expect. But it's one that Matthew includes. Um, So if you've got your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to be in Matthew for a little bit. We're actually going to end up in an Old Testament book, in the book of Joshua. So if you you like jumping back and forth, you can, or you can just head to Joshua uh, now. But we're going to be in Matthew for just a moment, because Matthew tells this story of Jesus. And he tells it in some ways that you wouldn't expect. You know, he's doing something that many, many people would do in this era. Matthew wants to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. 
He wants to show that it's coming. And everybody knows, every good Jew knows the Messiah is going to come from the line of King David. This warrior poet, this man who is passionate after God, that's the line the Messiah is going to come through. And so David has got to be where it's at. And so Matthew shows Jesus' genealogy through the line of David. But what Matthew does is what we don't do. Matthew shows and draws attention to things in this line that we might skip over. If you are here last week, you heard uh, Chad share about Judah and his brothers and what they did. And that's not part of the story that we would often choose to tell. That's part of the story that we would skip right past, that we would just brush over, that we would just, well, you know, we just pretend like that doesn't exist. But Matthew seems to almost intentionally put the brakes on and force us to stop and to look. There are four women in this list. And in a, in a culture that is as patriarchal as this one, that's unusual in and of itself. But three of these women aren't even Jewish. So Matthew's specifically highlighting that Jesus isn't 100% Jewish, that there's somebody in his background that came from the outside. And so Matthew wants us to pause and to see this. And so we're going to run through this list this morning, uh, looking at some of these folks. Matthew says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, uh, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham, and Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Again, last week, that's where we paused and took a look to hear that story. If you missed it, you can always catch it online or on, a pod, on the uh, New Life podcast. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Heron, or Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram is just one of the better names in the, in the scripture. If you're looking for a name for a child, this is a great place to go. Ram was the father of Aminadab. I've never met an Aminadab. My entire life traveling, I've never met an Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. He just sticks that in there. He could have just kept going. He could have just moved right past it, but he wants to highlight whose mother was Rahab. And Rahab had a nickname. Uh, some people have nicknames. Um, we were talking about this with a friend this week. I grew up with some guys with nicknames. Uh, guys like Bubba was one of my classmates in high school. Um, just seemed normal that you would have a friend named Bubba. I, didn't, I don't know if you guys grew up with a friend named Bubba, but I did. Um, but you have some of these nicknames that kind of stick onto people. Some of, some of them you'll know from uh, Scripture. You have John the Baptist. John the Baptist. You have some that are a little less known. You have Uriah the Hittite. Man, look at you Bible scholars. I'm impressed. Uriah the Hittite. Um, you have some of these names that kind of jump out from history. Um, you have King Herod the... King Herod the Great, he was kind of playing on that same image of Alexander the Great. You also have Buffy. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. One of the best shows of all time. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You have Conan the Barbarian, one of my favorite characters. I don't think he's in the scriptures, but he's a great character. You have all these different nicknames that kind of stick with people. And if you grew up in a church, especially a church that had a deep roots in the King James, you would know Rahab as Rahab the harlot. 
I don't know about you, but that's not a nickname that I strive for. Uh, it's not a nickname that I'm hoping sticks with me. Um, sometimes in, in the NIV, in the scripture we're going to look at today, it's going to be Rahab the prostitute. But that is not a name you would want. It's not an identity that you would look for. And yet, it's who she is. And Matthew puts it in there. Think about it for a minute. He could have just left it out. He could have just said, Salmon, the father of Boaz, and just kept going. But instead, he wants you to know, to see Rahab. And he doesn't even just say, whose wife was Rahab, and just leave it there. He specifically calls her Rahab the harlot. And so this morning, as a part of our Christmas series, I want to look at Rahab. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can flip open to the book of Joshua. It's an Old Testament book. Um, about a third of the way into your Bible, you should come across it there. Um, we're going to be in chapter 2. And to set up some context here um, to where we're going, Joshua is inherited the leadership of the new nation of Israel. Israel's only about 40 years old at this point as a nation. Uh, they've been in slavery for years. So if you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these patriarchs kind of lived in the promised land, but they had slowly been sent to Egypt, and they'd been sent to Egypt because of famine. And they'd sort of gotten stuck there. And so they were slaves in Egypt for years and years. God's people were trapped. And they were there for generations. And so they've finally been set free. They've finally been let go. You may have seen that famous movie, uh, Let My People Go. And they cross the Red Sea. And they've wandered in the wilderness. And they finally come to the point where they're getting ready to enter the promised land. And Abraham, that, uh, that, or uh, Moses, that great leader, has finally passed away. He's handed the mantle over to Joshua. And Joshua is now leading the people. And they're coming into the promised land. And they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. And there's the city of Jericho. And Jericho is one of the most fortified cities in this entire part of the world at this time. And it's a powerful city in part because of its impenetrable walls. And so Joshua does what any good leader does. He sends some spies in to scout this out. Let me know what we're up against. Let me know what's in there. We want to know what we're facing. And so these spies creep into the city and begin to look around. And people see them and like, hey, they don't, they don't talk right. They don't look right. I don't think they're from around here. And they go to the king and they say, hey, we think we've seen a couple of Hebrews here. And the king says, go and get them. And so these spies flee and hide in the house of Rahab. And that's where we're kind of going to pick the story up. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Oh, excuse me. We're going to, before we get to verse 8. So they flee into the house. They're in the house. They're kind of undercover. These guys, these scouts from the king come. They knock on the door. They say, hey, Rahab, I don't know why they knock on the door and they don't just kick it in. Um, that's, I've seen police movies and that's how they do things, they just bust the door open. Maybe they're afraid of who they might find in there, I don't know. Um, but they knock on the door and they say, hey, Rahab, we need to talk. So Rahab hides these two spies and she comes out and she says, oh yeah, they were here, but they're gone now. They, they're probably through the gates by now. You better, if you're going to get out before they close the city gates, and once those city walls close for the night, they are closed for the night. They cannot be reopened. Um, you've got to keep your city secure. And so these, this posse is mounted, and they take off trying to find these spies. And Rahab goes back in, and that's where the story picks up in verse 8. 
It says, before the spies lay down uh, at night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land. If you'll notice in your Bible, some of them may actually have the Lord written in kind of that weird, all caps, but kind of lowercase font. Um, What they're trying to show us in that translation is this is the Hebrew name for God. And it's this name that is so special, people wouldn't use it normally. It's a name that's so revered that people wouldn't say it. And I don't know what language Rahab spoke. I'm assuming they're using some sort of trade language or something. But when the writers wrote this down, when they wanted to draw your attention to this, they wanted to say that Rahab recognizes something about God. That this just isn't one of the many gods, but this is the God. The God over all the gods. This God matters. And she says, I know your God is going to give you this land. She goes on to say, I know that the Lord is going to give you this land. And a great fear has fallen over us, meaning the people of Jericho, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And, we, uh, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, two uh, powerful city-states east of the Jordan River, whom you completely destroyed. We heard, it, uh, we heard of it, and our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Think about how profound that really is. What she's saying there. Your God, despite what I've been taught since a little girl about my city gods, my family gods, my tribal gods, I know your God is above all of that. She may not know the stories of the patriarchs. She may not know the promises that God has made to his people. But what she has seen with her eyes, what she's heard with her ears, lets her to know that something important is happening here. And something big is taking place. And she makes sure and draws this out. This Canaanite woman, this person who by all accounts is an outsider. Many of us feel like an outsider from time to time in our lives. We'll go somewhere and we're kind of like, I don't know that I fit in this room. I don't know that I feel uncomfortable. I feel a little uncomfortable here. I generally feel uncomfortable everywhere. Just wherever I go, I feel like I probably shouldn't be there, that I'm probably intruding on somebody's space. I just feel this little bit of anxiety um, everywhere I go. Rahab felt it and knew that it was true. Knew that people looked at her and knew what she did for a living, knew who she was, knew her reputation, knew how she dressed. They knew her. And by the own Jewish scriptures, she's an outsider. She's not a Jew. She's not part of God's people. And there are really specific laws, really specific requirements when it comes to sexual relations and how those are to be done and where that, what the context for that looks like. And so by all accounts, she is not just an outsider, but an outsider who is to be judged. I think what's so profound about this, I think part of why Matthew wants you to see this, part of what matters here is that we have this image, we have this idea sometimes that there's this, there's this God of the Old Testament and there's this nice God, Jesus. 
And there's this old thing and there's this new thing. But part of what Matthew wants us to see is this God of grace and truth and mercy and forgiveness is peppered throughout this story. It's peppered throughout this story. And we're going to come back to what that means for Rahab's life. And so she looks at these guys and she has seen who God is and she recognizes it. And she said, now then, she's speaking to the spies, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all uh, whom belong to them and that you will save us from death. And the spies reply, our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city walls. Rahab recognizes what's coming. She recognizes who God is and she wants to be a part of that story. And she wants to be a part of that story and Matthew wants her to be a part of that story because she is the point of that story. That sometimes when we hear these stories, sometimes when we see these things, we can miss the people that are there. When Matthew draws attention to Rahab's story, when he wants to point it out with a little bit of a signpost with some flags that say, hey, remember this story. What Matthew is saying is remember who God is. Remember what he's about. And it's bringing people into the fold. It's bringing people into the family. And so she lowers these spies down. They sneak off from the city. She gives them real specific instructions as to how to invade uh, the scouts. They make their way back to Joshua. They say, hey, the city, they're all terrified. We're going to go in. Joshua says, that's great. You know, how'd you get out of there? They said, oh, there was this hooker with a heart of gold who helped us get through, helped us get out. And Joshua specifically says, specifically says, make sure that we treat kindly to her. Make sure that we take care of her. When we see that red cord hanging out of her window, her and her family and everyone who's inside her household will be saved. And so if you skip down to chapter six, you kind of see what happens. Um, as you're flipping there, what happens is this amazing little piece of Bible history. If you've heard of the city of Jericho, you've probably heard of the walls coming down. And what happens is these, this army of Israel has come in, this, this people group has come in, and they went into Egypt with maybe a couple thousand people, we're not exactly sure, under slavery, but under oppression, they began to grow and to prosper. And so estimates have them somewhere between two and three million people wandering through the desert, wandering across. It takes days for them to move places because there's so many people in this group. And they've come into the city of Jericho and they don't say, you know what we're going to do? We're going we're to build ladders and go over the wall. We're going to build siege engines. Instead, they put on their Adidas's. They got that ultra boost. They're ready to rock and they begin to walk. And every day they're going to walk around the city and that's it. And on the seventh day, they're going to walk around the city and yell. That's the plan. And so sure enough, that's what they do. And the walls of Jericho come down. And they rush in and take the city. 
And it's this amazing moment. We don't know why the walls came down. There's all kinds of a tremendous amount of research that's been done, a tremendous amount of speculation that's been done that these are earthen walls. And so there's that, that many people walking around the city. It's going to loosen up the foundation. And that's why they fell down. Uh, some people have tried to prove that the resonance of the sound, that's what knocked them down. If you have a million people yell, ah, the walls will come down. Um, listen, I yell in my house all the time. Not a single wall has ever even cracked. Um, so I don't know if that's really what happened. We don't know why the walls came down other than what happened next. And so the, the army rushes in. In chapter 6, you see this. Uh, Joshua said to the two men who spine out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men uh, who had uh, done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to them. They brought out their entire family and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They bring the whole family out. They've, they kept their word and they brought them into this body, into this world, into this covenant people. And it says next, and she lived, uh, uh, but Joshua spared Rahab, uh, the prostitute, and her family, and all who belonged to her in 25. But she hid, uh, because she hid the men that Joshua had sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She lives among the Israelites to this day. This grace and truth and mercy. This outsider, by any account, this person who belonged on the outside is brought in. And sometimes we can see these kinds of stories and we can think that they're just little add-ons, little interesting details. But what Matthew wants us to see, what God wants us to see, is that these outsiders aren't just part of the story. They're the point of the story. That that's who God is, bringing people into the family. This person who carries a label is brought in. We don't know what happens next. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. But one day, uh, she meets this man named Salmon. He says, hi, my name's Salmon. She said, Salmon? He said, no, no, Salmon. Um, and she, they said, hey, let's get coffee. Let's go hang out. Let's go spend a little time together. They get coffee. They begin to spend some time together. Uh, she says, man, this guy's awful sweet. and He's got a great camel. Let's make this happen. They get married. They have some kids. They name him Boaz. Um, I'm not sure why Boaz, but they pick Boaz. And Boaz grows up, and he actually marries another outsider, a lady named Ruth. Um, and I'm sure it has something to do, uh, men tend to marry women that are a little bit like their moms, and maybe that's what's going on here, I don't know. But she becomes a part of this story as well. And you can see this rhythm of God in and through this. And so that Hallmark movie that makes everybody cringe, that makes everybody say, oh, I don't want that to be my grandma. Matthew is showing that this is Jesus' grandma. This is the line he comes from, the people he comes through. That they may seem like the wrong label, they may seem like the outside, but they are the point. And so I don't know what labels you carry. I know we all have some. I know there are people in your life that you cringe if you were to see them at an event. 
you're in the grocery store and you make eye contact with somebody across the room and you can just feel your heart sink. You feel a little nauseous. You're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And you just desperately want to get out of that situation. You don't go to the high school reunion because you just can't bear to be seen as that person. You've got an ex-wife or husband who you just, if you could go back and change things, you would. Because you're not that person anymore. You're not that person anymore. You're not the person who made those mistakes. You're not the person who did that. But that name just sticks with you. Some of us do everything we can to try to hide from those labels. And part of what Matthew wants us to see is that you aren't just part of God's story, but you're the point of God's story. Because this challenging piece here, this picture that Matthew's painting, this picture that comes in even the story of Rahab, is this picture that so upends how we understand the world to work. We all understand that if we are good enough, if we do enough of the right things that balance out enough of the bad things, if we can just mass up enough, we will be accepted that we will be acceptable to God, that we'll have a right relationship with God. This is how most religions in the world work, that if I can accumulate enough good marks in my tally, that God will bless me. He'll bless my family, he'll bless my crops, he'll bless my business, he'll bless whatever. But what Matthew is saying and what Jesus uncovers completely is that it's always about who he is. And what he's going to do on the cross. That he is going to pay for our sins. That he is going to use our labels to tell God's great big story. And we all fight with this tension all the time. And some of you are like, oh, I'm all the way over here. I'm totally into this grace thing. I'm totally into this truth thing. I'm totally into this mercy thing. But then we all make jokes because we're really not. We have this, we have Santa and he's got a nice and naughty list and we're constantly teetering back and forth between what that list looks like. We have Elf on the Shelf where we teach our kids that there are people spying on them to see how bad they really are and if they're bad, too bad, they won't get any presents. We all live with this tension because we know we can hear about grace and mercy and forgiveness because of Jesus but we still try so hard to measure up. And some of you are carrying some labels and you feel like you can never do enough. You can never achieve enough. And what Matthew wants to see is this whole way of being. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That God is standing over here looking at this whole situation and he doesn't understand. The same way that we, we are going to give presents to our kids regardless of how good or bad they are. My son snuck the last of the cereal this morning. That was my cereal, my favorite cereal. We had a deal, he snuck it. He has not achieved enough of a tally mark that he is on the wrong side. He is still a part of the family. He is still somebody worthy of love and forgiveness. And if I can do that, somebody as petty and as insignificant as me, how much more can our God who loves us, who's come after us, who's called us into a relationship with him, invited us into it? Um, we would uh, love to have you, as the band comes back up, we're gonna uh, begin to sing and to talk about this. I know that you're carrying a label. 
It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. Almost all of us are carrying something that hangs with us for years. Something that changes who we are and who we see ourselves. And part of what I want you to see today is that there is so much more that's possible. That we can be invited into this relationship, invited into this world. We're even carrying our labels. Whether it's, it's infidelity, it's theft, it's lying, it's murder, it's heartbreak. No matter what it is, there is room and space in God's story. That you're not just a part of God's story, but you are the point of God's story. As we get ready to sing this morning, um, if you need somebody to pray with, I'll be in the back. Uh, we've got Chad in the back as well. We'd love to pray with you, some of the other leaders, um, to talk with you about what this could look like. But I hope this Christmas that this is the story that you see, that this is the story that changes everything. Not one of being good enough and not one of earning it, but one where we are invited into what God is doing. Now, let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you so much for this community. God, I pray for the lives that are here in this room, the lives that are connected to us as a body, the lives that are impacted by the work of following you. God, we pray that this Christmas, everybody would come under this, anybody who's under the sphere of our relationships, who's under the, the network of people connected through this room, would come to know the truth, that they aren't just a part of your story. But they are the point of your story. That Jesus comes and lives in our neighborhood, who put on flesh, who walked the way we should have, or who, who walked the same life we live, who lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we deserved, and was raised to new life so that we could bear witness to the fact that we are a part of your family, that we are children of you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.